For those of y'all that don't know me or that I didn't get to introduce myself to, I'm Jake Oshbacher. I'm the associate pastor here, and I'm really glad to be up in front of you this morning. Um, in my time in Austin, I got to work at a church called Austin Ridge um, in their youth program. And during my time there, there was a situation where it kind of started spreading through the church that there was a family that was going through some really serious crisis. And the crisis was one that I had never uh, heard of occurring in a church, but this was the first church that actually met this crisis head on. And so it was a husband who had been having an affair on his wife. They had, they had children. And um, it, it, it came out that not only was it an affair, but it was actually a second family with children of their own. And uh, when confronted, and he was confronted biblically, you know, his, his best friends came to him, and then church members, you know, elders came to him, and then the lead pastor came to him. And each time, it was a knowing, it was a, it was a clear understanding of, yeah, I'm, I'm making sinful, bad decisions, I don't care, this is what I'm doing. I, you can confront me, you can confront me with what I'm doing, I don't care. So the husband was just in blatant disregard of repentance. He was not willing to do that. And where the, where the story really hits me, and this is where we're kind of leading into with the church in Pergamum, was that they ushered him out of the doors and said, you are no longer welcome here. Because they had a woman and children to protect, and they had a man who was completely unrepentant of his, of his sin in his life and was doing so openly and publicly in that church. And that's a hard, that's a hard story. Um, and this is some hard scripture. It's really fruitful scripture, and you'll see why. But I open with that story to tell you that what we're going to be diving into today talks about, as a community of believers, how are we confronting one another in our pitfalls and in our sin and our brokenness are we doing it with grace? Are we doing it with love? And are we doing it with boldness and consistency? So um, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. Uh, we're going to open up to Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. For y'all with the black Bibles in the chairs, it's going to be page 1029. And uh, I'm going to read through it, and then we will dive in together. <clears throat> And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not, not, you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak and put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of their mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. 
It's mm-hmm. good. Okay, so Pergamum. What is Pergamum? Where is it? So Pergamum is current day Bergama. They're real unique on that name change. Uh, so this is this is Bergama, Anna. So there, this is Bergama. Um, Bergama and current day Izmir, which was the church in Smyrna. Drew taught on that last week. So Smyrna and Pergamum, imagine 35 corridor, okay, that distance. Um, and that's basically kind of the situation between the two. The, the entire region was called the Izmir region, but Pergamum, the town of Pergamum, is now Bergama. Except the 35 corridor is along a beautiful coastline and not that horrific thing that we drive on all the time. Um, the best way when I was reading through the scriptures to understand what ancient uh, Pergamum was like was current day Dallas, current day New York, current day LA, kind of hubs of society. Okay, so let's let's have that in our mind as we're trying to think about this ancient town and what it was about. Um, they had uh, first off, it was incredibly important to Romans and especially high up Romans in society because it was the cult center of the world at that time, not only for Romans, but for pagans as well, which is one of the key reasons why when Jesus is writing to this church, he says, I know where you dwell. I know that you dwell at Satan's throne. Um, It was basically the city that had the most to do with pushing out of the Christian culture so that the vacuum could be filled with cult worship, um, sexual idolatry, things like that. The church also had um, the largest library, uh, only second to Alexandria, and also had the world's largest healing center. So if we take all those things I just mentioned and we put them into one ball, what we see is that Pergamum was the center of high society, of excess, and of fashion. Okay, It was the LA, it was the New York, the Dallas of the time. That's why all the high up Romans, all the influential pagans wanted to be there. It was the place to see and be seen. Right. Now, what does that mean as far as the Christians who were there? Um, well, first off, it means that they were Basically, because in the scriptures it tells us that they held strong. They held strong to what? They held strong to the, the name of Christ, and they held strong to the faith of Christ. Okay, why is that a big deal? Everything around them, culturally, said, don't hold strong to that. There's greater things. And so that's why there's a huge, uh, there, there's a huge difference between the believers in the church of Pergamum and those who are following the false teachings of Balak. So in verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to, like I said, my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The first thing I want you to hear and you could even consider this a side note, but in difficulty, the first two words of that verse 
Can we go back to that one? Or Yeah, you can leave it here. I'm sorry, go back. It says, I know. Jesus tells the church, I know. I know what's happening. I know what the society around you looks like. I know what these people who are inside of your church, technically your brothers and sisters, are doing. To me, that was incredibly refreshing to hear that. But the other thing that we want to take into consideration and, and pinpoint in this scripture is that Antipas, who Jesus names, obviously an important guy, and if you go back to the history books, there's almost nothing written about him other than what's written in this scripture. He's almost a forgotten person. But Jesus found him so important that he said, I'm going to name him. I'm going to say his name to these people because he was obviously incredibly important to them. And so this is a little hard to say because there are situations like this around the world and you know things like this have happened in America. But imagine someone that you respect highly in this church that loves you, that you love, maybe a mentor of yours, someone that you walk with, dragged out of this room, taken to the street, and shot in the head because they love Jesus. That's who Antipas was to the church in Pergamum. So they not only have been infected by the teachings of Balaam, but they've been oppressed even to the point of murder of the people in their church. But the beautiful thing is that um, Rome brought their sword, but it also says that Jesus brought his. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Um, the sword of Christ is one that we are told is his tongue, it's his word, it's, it's the discernment that he brings to his people. And we're also told in Scripture that it separates bone from marrow. So from a medical standpoint, it is, it is capable of going all the way to the depths to separate the good from the bad, the unholy from the holy, and separate them so that we can recognize those things. The question here is what was going on? What was the church of Pergamum permitting, allowing? What were they putting up with that was so bad that Jesus said, uh, yeah, you need a letter, dude. Sorry, you're getting one of these seven letters in Revelation. Um, well, we have to go all the way back to the book of Numbers. Um, 22, chapters 22 to 25, and also Numbers 31. There's one verse in chapter 31 that talks about it. But what it describes is the uh, prophet Balaam. So the prophet Balaam and I highly encourage y'all to go and read these chapters because it really does shed a lot of light on what the church in Pergamon was experiencing from a false teaching standpoint. But basically, Balaam was asked by King Balak to come and curse the people of Israel because he was fearful of them because they numbered so many. He was fearful that the Israelites would come and take over their city. So what does he do? He says, hey, Balaam, you know the Lord. You, you know this all-powerful God. Come and curse these people. So he obviously hadn't heard the Israelites are kind of God's people, so probably not going to do that. But he does it anyway. So Balaam says, no, 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 I, I can't do that. Balak says, hey, uh, money and donkeys and, and gold and stuff. Balak's like, ah, just go see what it's all about, I guess. So he makes the trip. He goes and he visits Balak. 
he uh, is asked by Balak three separate times to curse the people of Israel. He refuses to do so. Instead, he blesses them. The the Lord uses him as a mouthpiece to bless the Israelite people. And so he's spared of that, right? But then on his way out, he basically tells the people of Israel, it's okay to be around these types of people. The people who understood false teaching and believed in it. The people who followed the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which are being talked about here in Revelation. And basically... What he's saying is that the the creed of Balaam is this. It's okay to act like the society. It's okay to accept the things of society, to tolerate them, because guess what? The creed of God is there, and so you're basically safe. It's okay. Right? So when we read about these people who are following the teachings of Balaam and who are following the forceful teachings of the Nicolaitans, which the Nicolaitans would actually teach in such a way that they would force people through fear and violence, to believe in what they believed. Those are the people that have now infiltrated and infected the church in Pergamum. Infectious disease. Infection is the invasion of an organism's body and tissues by disease-causing agents. The host itself can fight infections using their immune system. Let's read it again. I'm going to insert some words, okay? Infection is the invasion, Satan and his minions, of an organism's body tissues, the church, by disease-causing agents, sin, false teachings. Hosts can fight infections using their immune system, prayer, God's word, holy community, discipline, reconciliation, confession, and forgiveness. So when we envision the church at Pergamum, for me personally, I think that this image is what most clarifies what the situation really was at that time for that church. They had been infected. The real issue that Jesus had with the church at Pergamum was they were willing to put up with sin in their church, in their communities, within their families, and not say anything about it. There's two other times that I want to mention where the church said nothing and something somewhat off-kilter occurred. The first one is the German church in 1930s and 40s. Hitler comes to power. He begins taking over pieces of the government. He finally gets to take over the army. And within that same time period, he takes over the church. There is no more Protestant church. It is the Nazi church. You are either a part of it or you are not. And if you are not, concentration camps, get out of Germany or you're dead. Martin Nimmler was a Lutheran pastor. um, And he was also a pastor and a member of the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was a church that uh, was deeply affiliated with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his work. The, The Confessing Church was the church that was against the Nazi church. Many German pastors were a part of it. And it's also where many of the spy plots to assassinate Hitler came from. Nimmler says, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. 
So what occurred was so much of the German Christian under society of Germany decided just to hand themselves over without fighting, without saying anything, without speaking up for the gospel, that Hitler took ownership of it. The other church is the Southern Church of the United States. In the 1960s, Martin Luther King decided to start speaking up about some things that he saw happening in society. He says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. In correspondence to the church in Pergamum, I have a feeling that the believers in that church knew, were in community with, were family members of, the people who were believing the false teachings of Balaam, that creed, and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So it makes it that much more difficult to actually have the guts to stand up and go and speak to someone about something that they're doing, something that they're struggling with, a sin that they're falling over. The, the real question for me is how many times have I been in a situation where I knew I needed to talk to someone about something, either a conflict in the, in the relationship, but more primarily something in their lives that I saw bringing sin, death, brokenness, separation from the Lord in their life and refused to do it simply because I was scared of it? The answer is many times. I mean, not perfect, right? But that is what Jesus is primarily writing to the, to the Pergamum church about. Why are you not willing to speak up with bravery and courage in my name so that the church can either A, be rid of these people who are giving out false teachings, or B, that you can bring them back into the fold? Why are you not doing that? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. That hard conversation that you're thinking about with that person, because that conversation for sure popped up in everybody's head right now when I said that, and that's okay. We all have those things where we need to talk to people about them. The fear that you feel about having that conversation comes from the devil. I truly believe that because fear is not from the Lord. The beautiful thing about our relationship with Christ is that he gives us freedom in love to go to that person with what? With gentleness and speak to them about those things. Not because you want to see them change. Well, you need to change. You need to become a better person. I love you. Jesus loves you. We want to see you living a whole life. We want, you, we want to see you well. We are not guaranteed certain outcomes in relationships simply because we act in faith. This is the primary reason I hate having hard conversations. Because I have this expectation that after we're still going to be friends, you're still going to love me. We're still going to get to have fun together and laugh together. Are you willing to have the conversation with that family member or that friend 
even if afterward they say, I'm out, I'm done with you, and you never see him again. That's faith. That not only is that relationship in that person's life in the Lord's hands, but also that you have the power within you through Christ and the freedom he gives you to have those hard conversations. The application here, the, thing, the three things that are most surely going to assist you in having these hard conversations are these. One is knowing the, knowing the word of God. Um, in, in my beginning story, when I talked about the church that had to ask that man to leave, they, that process took months. It wasn't one day of some people getting angry because they heard about someone's sin and kicked them out. It was these church, this church, this pastor, these elders, these man's friends, walking with him, loving him, and finally saying, the most loving thing we can do because we're walking in the biblical example of confrontation and reconciliation and relationship is to say, sorry, buddy, we love you, but you just can't be here anymore. So we walk in the word, we walk in the assurance that there is information and knowledge and truth in God's word that can help us with confrontation. The second thing is boldness. Freedom to love and communicate openly without expectation of response. Uh, this weekend, yesterday actually, my wife and I went down to Stockdale, Texas, and to get to Stockdale, you drive through Sutherland Springs. And it shocked me because I knew we were driving through Sutherland Springs, but I didn't realize the church where the shooting occurred happened on the highway. Um, I, you know, so, so I, we pull into town, and it's there, and the new, the new church they're building is there, and there's all the crosses, and Las Vegas has sent a sign that said, Las Vegas prays with you, and it's just this amazing sense of a community coming together to make something right again. But what really struck me was, was there anyone in that man's life that was willing to ask him hard questions about what he was going through? Where was his mind? How was he living? Was he healthy? Because of the results, I, I have to believe the answer is no. Maybe there was. And if there were, I ask God to bless those people. But that's an extreme example of what we're talking about here. And understanding that everyone in this room is going through things, walking in sin in certain areas where we need brothers and sisters to come alongside us and say, hey, I see this thing. It's going to kill you. Will you let me walk with you in that? Can we walk in confession together? Will you reconcile? Can we find forgiveness through the love and the blood of Jesus Christ? That's hard to do. Nobody wants to do that, and that's okay not to want to do it. It's a completely different thing to walk in faith and do it because Jesus has asked us to. Lastly is community. Sticking together. Like I said, brother, sister, what's going on? There's been a major change in you in the last couple months, and I think it's because of this. Brother, like, hey, this pornography thing, we got to deal with that. Like, this is not okay. There's a, there's a saying that um, sin is personal, but it is not private. So the, the, the basis of the, of the quote is basically, yeah, 
you might have done that thing alone or in your own mind or alone, but the ramifications that it's causing within your spirit and your heart will be felt by other people. That's what it's saying. Where is the good news? It's in the gospel, as always. In verse 17, at the end of this passage, there's this like crazy weird thing where like we're all going to get this white stone and then like there's a name on it and okay, cool, I don't know what that means. The cool thing about the white stone is that no one really knows and that's okay. But there are some really smart people out there that have some ideas about it and they're really beautiful. And by Jesus telling the, the believers in Pergamum, you're going to get a white stone, what he's saying to them is, I know, and I want you to know that your identity is still in me. Okay? G. Campbell Morgan writes this regarding the white stone. So like I said, there's many, there's many interpretations about what this certain verse talks about because white stones were really prevalent. Uh, they were used for many things. Uh, in, in ancient days. But, uh, you know, one was you could get a, a white stone for, becoming, uh, for, being, for being found uh, not guilty of a crime. Hey, here's your white stone in society. Hey, here's my white stone. I'm, yeah, I was found not guilty. One was, hey, I'm a soldier. I was victorious in battle. I made it back. Here's your white stone. Thank you for your service, right? That's kind of like their purple heart of the day. Um, one was, if you were not a citizen of a certain region, but were made an official citizen through the grace of the society, you could get a white stone. Hey, no, no, I'm a, I'm a citizen. I'm here. But G. Campbell Morgan writes about this one, and it was my favorite. There is still one other meaning, perhaps more beautiful than all, very sweet and tender. There was a white stone known as the Tessera Hospitalis, Two men, friends, who were about to part, would divide a white stone into two pieces, each carrying with them a half, upon which was, was inscribed the name of the friend. It may be that they would never meet again, but that stone in each case would be bequeathed to son, and sometimes generations after, a man would meet another, and they would find that they possessed the complementary halves of one white stone, and their friendship would be at once created upon the basis of the friendship that was made long ago. And so, when it comes to confronting the sin of our church and our communities and our friends and our families and our own lives, we can know that we walk away in the reality that we hold a piece of that stone and Jesus holds a piece of that stone. And in that confidence that our identity is found in him, move into relationships with boldness and security, victorious in the blood of Jesus, knowing that the truth, though it be hard, that we speak to our friends, family, co-workers, church members, pastors, be holy, good, healing, and graceful. Are you willing to have some of those hard conversations in the next month, in the next year? Have you ever prayed to have a hard conversation with someone about something that they're struggling with? Have you ever had the hard conversation 
with the alcoholic in your family that just needs to stop, the drug addict, whatever it be? Are you willing to begin praying about that process, to have those hard conversations? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us the strength and the power and the confidence to know that we have grace through you to have hard conversations with our family members, our friends, and ourselves about the sin that is around us, in us, and in others. Help us to first have earned the right to be heard through relationship so that when we offer our love and grace to others with these messages, with these words, that you would be present as well. Help us, Lord. Help us also, Lord, to recognize the plank in our eye before we go and look into the specks of others' eyes. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.